Well, it never ceases to amaze me. When you ask someone for proof that the earth is old, you get a one or sometimes a two word response as their complete answers. I'm curious if you know what any of those answers actually are. What, what is the first thing you hear when somebody, that somebody says while trying to prove the earth is billions of years old? Uh, I can think of a couple. Let me, let me throw some out that I've thought of. You guys throw them out too. By the way, I gotta turn on my, my comments here so I can see you guys. Man, you guys got the chat going on. Hey guys. Uh, good to see everybody on here. Diana, good to see you on here. Gary, good to see you on here. Uh, a couple things I can think of. You guys throw them in the chat. What do you guys hear uh, when you hear the earth is old? Proof the earth is old. Uh, here's a couple. Dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. Or you'll hear starlight. Yeah. Or you'll hear, uh, oh, the geologic column. Yeah. Or uh, fossils. <laughs> it's always one or two, two word answers. Uh, Carbon dating, that's a big one they throw out there. What they actually mean is radiometric dating, but since most people really don't know what the difference is anyway, and they don't know what they're talking about, you know, who cares? Today, um, the older the worldview is gonna come tumbling down. And we're gonna start with a two word answer, carbon dating. Let's tackle that in today's conversation. What about carbon dating. Carbon-14 happens to be a radioactive isotope, which means it, it emits energy and particles and turns into a different atom. And so it's going to turn into nitrogen. It's going to go in the air and become part of the atmosphere. So this is kind of gives us a an egg timer and it goes tick, 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 tick. And then after 100,000 years, in theory, all that radiocarbon should be gone from any sample. The radiocarbon works for samples that come from, let's say, the last 2,000 years or so. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. Hey, if you're joining us from Facebook or on YouTube, or you're part of our podcast or television audience, Thank you guys for peeking into the Creation Today community for this conversation. We are a group of people that are being discipled through weekly conversations so that we can be all that God has called us to be. If you ever want to join our community, all you have to do is come on over to creationtoday.org and partner with us. You can find these shows uh, and uh, this show and many more at our website, creationtoday.org slash on demand. And you can go back and watch any of the shows that we've produced. Partners, guys, I love you guys. Thank you guys for hanging out with me. Uh, not only do I love you guys, but you guys are going to love today's guest for my conversation on carbon dating. We do have a very special guest joining us. He received his master's in biotechnology in 1999 from Stephen F. Austin State University. He got his PhD in paleobiochemistry in 2019 from the University of Liverpool. He taught junior high and high school uh, at a Christian schools, a couple different ones in Texas, as well as biology, chemistry, and astronomy as an adjunct and assistant professor in the Dallas area universities. Uh, in 2008, he joined the Institute for Creation Research as a science writer. He is now a research scientist with the Institute for Creation Research. Ladies and gentlemen, to talk about carbon dating with me, help me welcome our friend, Dr. Brian Thomas. Dr. Thomas, welcome back to the Creation Today Show, buddy. Thanks for thanks for having me on, and uh, 
and uh, good to see you again. Uh, since you're from the Institute for Creation Research, I thought I'd just ask, what are you guys up to? What are you guys researching these days? Well, uh, each of our each of our scientists, including me, has like a separate project that we try to uh, try to keep up with. I'm working on um, some new exciting results. Uh, we have uh, um, a collagen protein sequence from a, a new a dinosaur bone. And so we're going to be working on publishing that in the scientific literature. And then after that, I'll show you the paper. And then you could say, hey, to your friends and say, hey, what do you think of this? What does this mean? Uh, and then people can reach their own conclusions on that. We're also uh, doing a big project right now with cave fish. These are blind cave fish. And we're, we're looking at how long, we're trying to test how long does it take the sighted cave fish that live at the surface. It's the Mexican blind tetra, Astyanax mexicanus. And they're common in Mexico and even in central Texas um, where they pioneered the different waterways. How long does it take the sighted fish to lose their sight? They actually don't just go blind. They actually trade their sight for a whole suite of, um, of features that enable them to detect their environments without eyes. And uh, so anyway, we're doing some research on that. Very exciting. Sharing our first results uh, later this month at the wow. International Conference on Creationism in Ohio. So I will forward. be there. Ah, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this. That is awesome. Um, and, and what I find interesting is, and it's, it's almost like it's exactly like you guys have been saying for years, you can do all the research, you can present the papers, there's the paper, and then some evolutionary scientist is just going to either ignore it or just try to reinterpret it from his own perspective rather than, I say letting the data speak, they're, they're going to look at it through their worldview, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Well, Man. for the most part. But, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like when Jesus tried to do ministry with the Pharisees. Like most of them resisted all the evidence that was right in front of them, healing of people, raising people from the dead. They're like, you're doing these works by the devil. I mean, come on. But <laughs> one out of 100 said, you know what? This can't be of the devil. This has to be from God. But in order to adopt that whole view that Jesus is actually God, instead of all their friends who are saying Jesus is like, you know, he's a false prophet. Uh, so they had to like, they had to suffer the ostracism from all their Pharisee friends just to go on the Jesus side, you know? And that's probably why Nicodemus met Jesus at night because he's like sneaking around going, uh, Jesus, can I talk with you? <laughs> so anyway, so we have this that same is kind a of social phenomenon where we're scared to go against the flow sometimes. What a great analogy and biblical reference to see exactly what's happening today. Uh, that's, that's, that's a powerful thought because it is, it's going against the flow and you gotta be willing to, to do that, not many scientists are willing to risk their paycheck or their pension or their tenure, uh, things like that, in order to go against the flow. Wow. Um, oh, hey, am I allowed to share with them? Uh, you and I have been working on a project too that I think yeah. is, uh, I think that's kind of cool. Can we share that with them? Let's do it. I went over to uh, the, the Dallas area and went to the, the Discovery Center where Dr. Thomas works, as well as his other scientist friends. Uh, that's where Institute for Creation Research is headquartered. And we got to film the third in the Night at the Series movies. We did Night at the Creation Museum, Night at the Ark Encounter. And we filmed and we're trying to finish up right now the edits on Night at the Discovery Center. Check this bum, out. Bum, bum. I thought I would take you on a tour of the Discovery Center. 
Uh, if we have time. Hey, you guys better hurry. The lights will be going off soon. Oh, well, let's run. This is the Origins exhibit. Okay, so this film takes some nice twists and turns, and it's a, I don't know, Brian, I'm actually really happy with, with what we've got so far. I think it's really turned out good. Good storyline, great acting, by the way, Brian, Dr. Dr. Thomas. I was blown away, man. You did so good. This is, this is incredible. It's like you, this is your second career is a, is a movie actor. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> I was blown away. Seriously. I thought, wait till you guys see it. Okay. Really, 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 really good. Okay. We got to jump into carbon dating here, radiometric dating to be specific. Um, can you give uh, everybody real quick an overview of, of what is a, what is radioactive carbon dating? What is what well, radioactive dating first carbon dating is a portion of it. What is an isotope? Things like that. What, what's really going on with carbon 14 dating? Well, um, like you said in the intro, carbon Carbon dating is, is a word that people that I talk with throw around, um, but what they mean by that is like isotope dating, but there's several different isotope systems. And so with any one of these systems, the, the fundamental um, um, operation um, works by comparing ratios, ratios. So like this to that, right? And so with an isotope, you have different versions of an atom, and in the carbon atom isotope system, you've got carbon 12, 13, and 14. And so what we measure um, with accelerator mass spectrometers, and I've never used one, but I have friends who do, um, they measure the ratio of carbon 12 to carbon 14. They also measure the ratio of 13 to 14. And so what, what causes these balances or these ratios? And that's the whole question that science cannot answer. That's the piece that nobody seems to remember. Because in order to know what caused this, more of this and less of that, or more of that and less of this, what caused that? You have to have, you know, you have to have like instruments, like detectors in the rock or in the artifact, uh, the entire history of that, you know, of its, of its time underground in order to know where is it coming from? Where is it going? How did it get there? Uh, but we don't have that. All we have is the ratio now. Like, how, here's the ratio how, as it is now. And it is decaying. So, uh, so the more that this radiocarbon decays, it turns into nitrogen. It leaves the system. So this is the carbon-14 is decaying. The carbon-12 stays constant. Um, at least it doesn't decay radioactively. But carbon-14 happens to be a radioactive isotope, which means it decays. It, it emits um, energy and particles and turns into a different atom. And so it's going to turn into nitrogen. It's going to go in the air and become part of the atmosphere. So eventually, the radiocarbon in any sample is all going to turn into nitrogen after something like 100,000 years, like at most. So this is kind of gives us a like um, uh, uh, an egg timer and it goes tick, 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 tick. And then after a hundred thousand years, in theory, all that radiocarbon should be gone from any sample. So that, uh, so that's like some of the basics. Does that help any? It does. So basically you're, you're comparing how much of this compared to how much of this. And then over time, one of them is going to go down. The other one's going to stay constant. So you're trying to basically use the amount that it's gone down to judge how much time has passed. 
Right, but when we use this isotope system as a clock, we're assuming that there are no other factors that have influenced the amounts. And it turns out that there are other factors that influence the amounts. In other words, you could bring in radiocarbon from somewhere else and make it look, you know, like like there's like it's younger. Or you can leach out radio some some uh, you I say you can I mean natural processes can 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 leach out some of that radiocarbon and make it look older. And so, what has gone on in the past? And it's hard to tell. So we don't we don't really have. Because I like to think of it as an exact science, but the exact part is the amounts, not necessarily the interpretations of what either added or subtracted the amounts. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and by the way, the precision, or, or should I say accuracy, yeah, the, 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 the uh, precision is really high but um, uh, with these measurements, but the accuracy also very high. Accurate meaning like do the numbers on our paper as the result of our test reflect the actual um, ratio that's in the sample? And that's really high also for radiocarbon. So it's a very, very precise and very accurate reading. Okay. But the question, but, but that's just a ratio. That's right. not an age. And so how do you convert a ratio into an age? Well, you have to use a formula, a conversion formula. And what does that formula contain? Variables. Some of those variables we cannot fill in with any measurable science. We have to make assumptions to fill in numbers into those, to take the place of those letters, those variables. And it turns out that those assumptions are at risk in many cases. Okay, well, I'm, I'm curious about that. By the way, Gary, uh, one of our partners is asking, what causes radiocarbon, you know, carbon-14 in the first place? How does that happen? Uh, so in the upper atmosphere, today anyways, in the upper atmosphere, uh, solar radiation um, uh, will hit, um, you know, these, these nitrogen atoms and, and uh, convert them into, um, into radiocarbon. And so there's a certain rate at which that happens. So it's called the, I guess you can call it the radiocarbon production rate happens in the upper atmosphere, um, and where the, where the solar intensity is higher. Um, and, and then some of those radio new, newly born radiocarbon atoms in the uh, upper atmosphere will, you know, settle down into the lower atmosphere. They get incorporated into plants as plants do photosynthesis. They grab uh, carbon dioxide from their environment, make that part of their tissues, and then the animal eats the plant, thereby taking in whatever radiocarbon ratio was in the plant tissue also gets incorporated into the animal tissue, both in sea and on land. That's the gist of where it comes from, uh, yeah. So then we all we all make it part of our body. So you really you can only radiocarbon date something that was once living and either ate either was a plant or ate plants, so that it had like you don't radiocarbon date rocks. Correct. Yeah. Exactly okay. right. Yeah. There's okay. other radioisotope systems that that are present just in rocks, like potassium argon or uh, you know the lead lead or the uranium lead. You know, strontium rubidium rubidium strontium however that works you know so those are some isotope systems but those but those isotopes like here's your one lead isotope and here's the radioactive lead isotope well this goes through uh, a series of decays and the lead um, uh, the lead turns into a more stable lead so if it's lead lead dating you have two lead isotopes you're looking at those well it takes so long at today's decay rates for the lead 
to um, uh, to to decay into a more stable version of lead. Uh, in that case, it takes so long that it's a great um, isotope system for people who already are predisposed to think in terms of millions and billions of years to choose or select that particular isotope system because they're expecting the rock to be millions of years old. So they select an isotope that takes millions of years to decay. And lo and behold, it's kind of like, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So it's, it's like they select an isotope system that already fits what the kind of the result that they expect uh, and need to have. So they're using a process that's going to match what they think the results should be anyway. It's going it, to, it, well, it turns out it doesn't always match, but it's, it's going to have a better <laughs> chance of matching. Yes. Well, I, I find that whole process interesting too, because we're told, oh yeah, radiometric dating. Oh yeah, Earth is old, radiometric dating, radiometric dating. We're just, this is thrown out there when really the knowledge behind it would not conclude that, especially when you consider... They came up with an old earth age back in the 1800s and radioactive, any kind of radio dating method wasn't invented until the early 1900s. So they came up with old ages way prior to radiometric dating, right? Oh yeah, and, and old earthism became uh, mainstream among Western scientists in actually in the 1700s. And so by the time Charles Darwin's book was published in 1849 or so, 1859, um, yep. 59, um, the old earthism was already fully entrenched um, in, in, in um, Western academic um, and, and scientific uh, societies. And so basically that gave Darwin the canvas across which he could tell a tale about small to large, simple to complex, uh, natural selection, crafting creatures, one form into another with infinite morphing between forms. That's his story, but it can't be told unless you have the canvas of deep time. And all that, the story and the deep time, uh, the, um, the story of evolution and the, the deep time timeline that it, that it utilizes, both of those were in place long before radioisotope dating uh, was ever uh, invented or, or popularized or used extensively. I want to know how mainstream scientists use carbon-14 dating. Uh, I want to know, is it reliable? Uh, things like that. I also, I grabbed a clip. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, there is a clip online of Bob Inyart when he was uh, alive. He had a radio show out of Denver, and he called Jack Horner, who famously has discovered multiple dinosaur bones. Uh, and he is the one who was over the research that Mary Schweitzer did with the soft tissue back in the early 2000s when that came out. And it's a video clip of, or an audio clip of him asking Jack Horner to carbon date the dinosaur bone. And I was shocked that Jack Horner refused to do it. I don't know, should I show that now or wait till after you answer kind of the question of how, do, how, how are scientists using this? Let me answer first, if you don't mind. Okay. And, yeah. and then if you give, if you give me a, a, um, an opportunity to react to that, to that conversation between um, Jack and Bob, uh, that would be nice of you. Very kind Perfect, of you all right. Yeah, that but, sounds yeah, great. But, but basically, uh, archaeologists use it. Archaeologists use carbon dating to look at ancient human artifacts, uh, and so it turns out that from, for the most part, it's got like a. Usually, it gives a really plus or minus fifty years date. Sometimes it gives the the year 
you know, with, within 10 year time frame, you know, uh, sometimes, but this, and it does it correctly. So radiocarbon works for samples that come from, let's say the last 2000 years or so, maybe even 2,500 years. But once you get to, um, well, it's a famous study done by Manfred Bietak. He's a secular Austrian archeologist and he's been studying this region of, 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 of um, Egypt called Avaris. And that's where the it's where the Israelites were encamped uh, and where they lived uh, um, during their sojourn in in Egypt, and that's he's basically discovered that um, he wasn't trying to, but he was just studying our, our, a virus, and he was like, look at all these Hebrew-looking things, and then he, anyway, he dated two hundred artifacts from that um, from all over the well from artifacts from Avaris, and um, it turns out that the radiocarbon dates are systematically 100 years off of the calendar ages or the their calendar ages right for for the for the chronology that they've developed and so there's one group of archaeologists who are saying all the radiocarbon dates are systematically getting older 100 years older at that age and even and at artifacts even older um, from from even times before have an have an even greater error margin um, but other archaeologists saying, no, the radiocarbon dates are, are fact, fact, fact. And so you have to go redo you, all your chronologies. So there's this constant debate within the chronologists' um, uh, papers and the archaeologists who try to, to try to reconstruct history. So anyway, um, all that to say, um, um, it's reliable until you get to about the time of the Exodus, which is like 1446 BC, according to the Bible's chronology. So once you get back that far, um, the, the, the radiocarbon dating seems to veer. So the radiocarbon ages look systematically older than the calendar ages. And we think we have a clue as to why that is. And that's, that's kind of where, that's kind of the side of the debate that I, that I land on, is that the, the radiocarbon dating um, has got problems. Now, how do we know that it does work for artifacts that are only a couple thousand years old? Well, they're, they're from, they're from um, uh, archaeological contexts that have time stamps in the same like layer. And so you have like pottery made during a certain era in a certain place. So pottery is characteristic of a, of a culture and of a time when that culture lived. Uh, or even a coin, you know, a coin with a Roman, you know, or an Egyptian, like a bulla, which is an Egyptian seal, with, which has a particular pharaoh uh, on it. So that, that helps to limit your time frame when that could have been deposited. So when you have someone's name, like like a pharaoh's name or a or a Roman emperor's name on a coin or something like that, and you carbon date something from the same layer, you have a nice independent cross check of that carbon date. And it turns out that the carbon years in those cases very often, not always, but they often match the actual calendar years that we have attached to those uh, to those layers. And and they're not they're not looking at the calendar year first and then sending that calendar year to the lab saying carbon date this here's what we're expecting or I mean is there any is there any bias that can be going into making those sure those are accurate or no those are just pure scientific numbers this is what we come back with based on uh, a half life of five thousand seven hundred thirty years. Um, I, I'm sure that there's small bits of bias, but. Um... It, it's hard to argue against a suite of multiple independent uh, chronological markers like that. So if you have 
if you have radiocarbon years that match the calendar years that you know from you know uh, some other time indicator like something written like a king's name during during the king's uh, reign well and then you could cross check the king's reign time with historical records where people wrote it down now that is that's really the best history if you can go back to written records just like in the court of law that's how you reconstruct the past is by going to what people wrote down people who lived there at that time you know and uh and to reliable records of reliable eyewitnesses and historical witnesses that's that's really that's really very solid so it's not it's if you when you say eric you say pure science it's like well these are all historical sciences we're talking about forensic analyses basically and so we're not talking about the same kind of science where you repeat an experiment and anyone can repeat it and observe it and you're watching the process happen through time in your lifetime like right now you can repeat it again that's like empirical science. That's the kind of science that develops technology, put the man on the moon, gives us cell phones, all that kind of stuff. But forensic science is reconstructing the past. And so you do different procedures and you cannot know with, with as much certainty with just processes because you have to make inferences. Has this process been going on at the same rate in the past? Did something else affect this, this process in the past that we're you know, you know that we we can't see anymore because that that because that whatever affected it is now done is now now gone. Like Noah's flood could have affected, you know, isotope ratios and things like that for sure, uh, etc. But when you have people wrote it down in the past, boy, that's that's the way to go when it comes to history. And what what you and I have landed on, I think, over the years, is coming to realize: wait a minute, the Bible itself is a reliable witness. Of, uh, of history written down by reliable eyewitnesses. These things really happen. They, they did indeed. <laughs> and that's, that's what we base our entire trust on is, uh, is revelation from God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I love it. It really, it really did happen. That's, that's to me, and I'm sorry, I'm getting on my preaching thing. I keep going. When I meet Christians that question whether it's true, I'm like, well, then do you also question whether, you know, how you should behave or maybe that's why we got so many problems in the church today because people aren't behaving like real Christians. And maybe it's because they're like wondering, yeah, I wonder if it's all really true. And it's true. Uh, um, we do have the written record. Man, I, I wonder if I have time to show this. Um, okay, let me, let me show this, but I may have to save your response for after we have to let social media go. But I want social media to see this clip, okay? Bob Inyart talking to Jack Horner, calls him up, gets him on the phone offers him money to have his T-Rex bone radiocarbon dated. And well, I'll let the, the clip speak for itself. Check this out. Hello, Jack. This is Bob Enyart with KLTT Radio in Denver. Uh-huh. How are you doing? Good. Jack, I sent a letter offering the museum a grant of $8,000 to do a carbon-14 date test of that soft tissue T-Rex you guys dug up. Well, um... Um, carbon-14 doesn't Isn't, work on something that old. I, I understand that, and in the last couple of weeks, I've been able to raise a little more money, so that's up to $10,000 now, that we'd be honored to give you guys if you would consider doing that test. Well, we can't do that test. You can't do that. No. Um, let, let, me, let me tell you where I'm coming from here. Sure. All right? Obviously... 
your group is a group of creationists. Yes. And and um, and the spin they can get off of it. Right. Doing it is well, not going to help. Not going to help us. Carbon fourteen dating something with soft tissue in it. Jack, if I could raise $20,000, would it be worth? I, I want to know what group is sponsoring it. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I, I, I mean, I need, I need some really specific details about. Sure. And don't just, you know, tell it to me straight. Of okay? course. There's a local church here, Denver Bible Church, mm-hmm. that's offered to help. Okay. So we could, if you guys agree, we could send you the check within 24 hours. Okay. Well. Let me talk to Mary, and okay. let me just talk to a few people. Okay. Because I don't want to, you know, I can't afford to have it turn into a circus. Right. Can't afford to have that turn into a circus. Wow. Um, yes, I'd love your thoughts on that, because I found that conversation fascinating. And I'm wondering, do you know, have we actually discovered any radioactive carbon in dinosaur bones? Because that would be... That would be a death blow to the idea that these things are, are 65 million years old. Oh, we certainly have. And not just, not just uh, fossil bones, but um, um, basically anything that has carbon, any earth material that has carbon in it seems to have some amount of, of radiocarbon. And we're talking even oil, deeply buried oil reserves, um, natural gas, coal. Um, if it's got carbon, it's got radiocarbon, uh, fossils, et cetera. So I'd be glad to, to talk about those things. Wow. Okay. You're going to have to save that. I got to let my uh, social media and my uh, podcast listeners and television audience go. Guys, thank you for tuning in and peeking into our conversation. We're going to continue over at creationtoday.org. If you want to join the rest of the conversation and get access to every conversation we've ever had, past, present, and anything we do in the future. Come on over to creationtoday.org and partner with us. Um, it's, it's good to get this kind of discipleship. Uh, Brian, I want them to know where to find your material. Is ICR.org is, is the main website for Institute for Creation Research. Is there, uh, is there a, a place on there where they just do a search for Dr. Brian Thomas to find your writings and your articles? Or do you have anything you think, man, on this subject they should really get a hold of? Uh, yeah, I think ICR.org and uh, just use our our search feature, and we have tens of thousands of articles on any topic of origins. What about the ice age? You know, what about carbon dating? And uh, it's, you could kind of, you could kind of get in the wormhole and, and read, you know, for a long time. And we also have links within those articles to more technical articles, which you find on different, uh, you know, different places, but we'll, but, but, but I, but I think the ICR.org is a nice hub to go, to go branching off into more details from there for sure we even have uh videos we've got uh, if you're gonna if you go to youtube we've got uh, icr science i think is our channel something like that we have a youtube channel we talk about these issues also including radiocarbon i think if not it's coming soon 
<laughs> no, you guys do. And matter of fact, I, I got one of those videos that I want to show our, our partners here in just a second. But guys, and, and sign up for their Acts and Facts. They have uh, just some amazing resources that they, that they make available. Go there and get on their email list so you're actually getting their content on a regular basis. I'm telling you, well worth you investing this time and energy to be discipled into understanding the truth of who God is and what he wants for your life. Um, is that good? Okay. All right. Social media. Thank you guys. Hey, next week, man, I got a great show next week. Uh, my friend, Bill, uh, Bill Cluck, he's the atheist side of the Christian atheist book club, uh, that he started with James Walker. So he's going to be in studio talking with me. I'm going to do an interview with an atheist. And I'm telling you, these are some of my favorite conversations talking to atheists. And he's, he's more of an honest atheist. So I think you'll, you'll find you'll find his comments intriguing. Some of you atheists out there will find them downright infuriating, but he's being honest when so many other atheists are not. Join me next week live at noon uh, on Wednesday for an interview with an atheist. I'll see you guys next week.